Happy Monday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Hitchcock Minute, a show where every week, actually two weeks, uh, teams of Movies by Minute hosts get together and talk about uh, one of the greatest uh, Hitchcock adventure movies of all time, the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock directed feature North by Northwest. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of the Airport Minute, the Apollo 13 Minute, and the Rocketeer Minute. And I'm Hal Bryan, the airplane nerd from the Experimental Aircraft Association and also of the Rocketeer Minute and uh, uh, assorted freelance guest spots. Yay, and uh, so this this is our next, our next for the next 10 days, you're stuck listening to us chatting about this movie. And I, Hal, I'm not sure how about you feel, but this is, this is one of, if not my favorite, I'd say it's in the top three of my favorite Hitchcock movies. Yeah, I think it's, it's a pretty clear number one for me as well. And there is just, uh, there's something... It's always so sort of ridiculously watchable about Cary Grant. I mean, when we were kids, we were watching, you know, things like the Flintstones and reruns, and you'd see Cary Granite, and, you know, you'd see him, uh, you'd see a caricature of him there, and you'd see sort of, uh, I, I think he showed up in some of the uh, Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies where you would see casts of Hollywood stars, maybe, maybe not, but he was sort of the, you know, you had Humphrey Bogart and Jimmy Cagney who were just talking about offline Cary Grant, and it just sort of these characters with these silly voices and it's like you know who they're imitating but you don't necessarily know the source very well uh, for at least not for me until I got just a little bit older and then you really watch the guy and you realize my gosh he's got he's just nothing but just raw presence yeah he's he's you can't help but stare at him I mean uh, now frankly right. for for Flintstones I was more of a Stony Curtis kind of a guy sure right? Stony Curtis uh, <laughs> uh and grooving to the uh, the music of the Bo Brummel Stones Yes, which yes. was really one of the worst uh, Flintstoneifications, <laughs> I think, uh, ever. We took the band, the Bo Brummels, and uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, Anne Margrock, of course, yes, was another. And Dash uh, Riprock, too. You know, yes, <laughs> Dash Riprock, another, oh, another favorite. Uh, but there's, there's, an, there's, a, there's a podcast in there somewhere. There um, it is. But I do, I do love this film. It's, uh, I, I think for plot, it, it, for, the plot is silly. The plot, you, you don't have to worry about, the plot is to get, like any like any Bond movie, and I would make the case that this is the first James Bond movie, but... I would agree, it, absolutely. It, it didn't, it, you, know, you didn't need to follow the plot too much. If you wanted a plot, I'd deal with uh, something like Shadow of a Doubt. I, I love that Joseph Cotton movie with uh, Teresa Wright, and sure. uh, it, for, for plots, I'd go with that, but this one, just for the sheer roller coasterness of it all, I, I just really embrace this film as something. It's it's one of those things that if it's on TCM or you just you're flicking through channels and you see it, it's like oh great, there go the next two and a half hours of my life because I got to watch the rest of this right. movie. Uh, and there's there's movies that uh, that you watch and get into, and there's movies that uh, that are just as enjoyable to simply look at. And I, I put this movie. I mean, I, I enjoy watching the movie quite a bit. It's very engrossing, very entertaining to me. But it is also just as much fun to look at. Let's just let's just watch it and take a look at look at the cool cars, look at the great bus that we'll talk about in in uh, the next minute here. You know, of course, the airplanes, just mid century everything. You know, yeah. just show me a show me a street scene and a uh, downtown in this era, and I'll have fun car spotting and everything else. Yeah, I mean, it's and you just want you want to be Cary Grant in this movie. I mean, he's got right. this, this scene here. We're seeing him in that great silver suit, and I don't I don't look the, I, I can put on a suit, but I don't look like Cary Grant. In a <laughs> and that to me, you mentioned this sort of being the first James Bond movie. The suit here, it's not the same, but it always reminds me a little bit of of the classic Goldfinger gray suit that Sean Connery yeah. wore. And oh. they, they they carry themselves similarly. You know, it, it's just as impressive on both guys. Yeah, and th- thankfully, Cary Grant does not, unlike Sean Connery, he does not appear in a, a, a 
baby blue terry cloth onesie as he, true as he that is one advantage this film has over uh, has over goldfinger and the uh, the poor d- dismissal of dink with the words men yeah. talk <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah you you like you say you Harry grant comes on screen and you could just just watch him and it's interesting too because he's such you know the the one maybe slight negative I would have with the casting of this movie, and it's 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 tongue in cheek, is that it's hard to imagine Cary Grant as the kind of guy who would sort of stumble into an adventure through a series of misunderstandings. Yeah. You know, he's he's such a, a strong presence, such a strong leading man. It's like, well, well, of course he's out there having these epic adventures and things. He's Cary Grant, darn it, you know. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, why did he waste all that time in the advertising business? He could have been out having, having adventures. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, but boy, he's the, uh, he's the one who, who would have shown Don Draper how it's done. Yeah. Well, and, you know, this, we, we lucked out. This, all of, and, and for people listening in, all these um, episodes, or these, these 10 episode uh, bunches, uh, were delivered at random. We had um, uh, Mary, uh, uh, Mary Elizabeth McDonough from the Waltons picked out at random, uh, gave us all different. <laughs> different episodes and thank thank you again mary i it was a big help doing that um but we lucked out with of course us doing an aircraft oriented uh, podcast we wind up with the, the the most famous uh airplane in uh, hitchcock's movie history and, are you uh, sure that uh that the waltons uh, weren't uh, subject to bribery were they susceptible well, you know, to that sort of thing? And, uh, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll ask her again. But she does live. She does live not too far from me. But you know, it's just <laughs> she's just being a good neighbor. <laughs> it's just that uh, is just I, amazing because you know, heaven forbid, we would just take a spreadsheet and write our names down. But no, no, <laughs> but, oh, no. it's that sounds way too <laughs> the, simple. The deck was the deck was not stacked, and that's what you know. Uh, but we do, we do wind up with this, and we're, later on this week we're going to wind up with one of the most iconic scenes in all Hitchcock movies. I mean, this is right. the thing that people remember. This is as as, as striking as uh, uh, Janet Lee screaming at a knife. It's it's so it's so cool. But uh, absolutely. And this this particular uh, group of minutes. Well, it started a little bit earlier than where we're at here. And I apologize if last week's group. I don't I don't hear what other people are recording at the time. But last week uh, began this whole scene, starting with the bus pulling up and dropping uh, Cary Grant off here in the middle of nowhere in Prairie, Prairie Crossing, Indiana, wherever that may be, which doesn't seem to be a real place. Um, but we go from uh, anybody who's taken film school classes will use this scene to understand the difference between omniscient to subjective. And we went from this omniscient scene uh, last week of uh, the bus pulling up, and we're kind of a God's eye view of seeing this, uh, this little uh, bus pulling up and dropping him off. And then we go to uh, the subjective scene. We're looking at uh, Roger Thornhill, looking around, trying to figure out where Kaplan is, where Kaplan was supposed to meet him. And this fellow gets dropped off across the street, and that's, that's where we wind up in this minute, that Thornhill is trying to find Kaplan, and uh, here's the only guy, <laughs> the only guy for miles around. Um, and, you know, the, uh, uh, it, it was funny. I was reviewing this minute before we started today, and I was struck again how the, the silence of this scene is so powerful at the very beginning. There's, it's just, I had to double check my sound settings like twice. I thought, wait, why am I not getting audio? Because this is a movie and there's, there's always music and extra Foley and, you know, something going on every second. Right. And no, it's just, it's nice. It's so quiet. And then he walks over and then the dialogue, uh, the dialogue starts and it just, it, it's a, a brilliant use of silence. It gives you that sense of, of just reinforcing that you are just in this desolate, wide open, middle of nowhere kind of area. 
Yeah, and you're, you're really forced to kind of lean into it. Like you're saying, you're, you're saying there has to be sound. Bernard Herman's on this movie. There should be like <laughs> right. at least a timpani or something. But uh, <clears throat> it's just the wind blowing and, and his uh, feet scraping on gravel. And, you know, so you don't hear well, this. This is a this is a brilliant statement. Uh, everybody buckle up because I'm going to say something super <laughs> smart. Um, but if pardon the pun, I guess you don't hear silence as much in movies anymore. Uh, yeah. Is, is if, when you if, if you ever sit down and do a, a Star Wars marathon, for example, uh, you'll be struck in episode four in particular that it still has some of that austere, what I think of more as the 70s era sci-fi, which of course it was, where you're, it's okay to have a, a bit of silence here and there and, and give it a little bit of a sparser tone from time to time. And I, I can't sit down and, you know, and, and improve this, but I just, I have this sense that in modern films, like we, we don't use that very much. Like we're afraid to lose the audience. So let's at least fill it with music or fill it with something and make the edits tighter. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the, the MTV generation is, has uh, changed the way we look at everything. It has to be shorter, tighter cut. And right. we get uncomfortable when we're, when we're sitting in silence or, or the, the scene doesn't change. When, I mean, this is a while back, but I remember watching uh, the uh, uh, Star Trek sequel, uh, The Wrath of Khan. Oh, sure. There, there's one scene on the Genesis in the Genesis cave where uh, Kirk is talking to his, uh, his old love um, and uh, B.B. Bess is just sitting there uh, chatting with him about uh, their past and he's just paused and looking off in the distance and there is no sound and you're thinking well this is a Star Trek movie something should be happening now something where's the phaser blast yeah that? somebody beam in quick yeah yeah and, and that's and yet another one with a composer you know James Horner you're expecting to oh, hear trumpets and uh, but it's uh, mm. it's nice and uncomfortable. I think that's that's the beautiful part, and very mysterious too, because you're really expecting. Well, now they're going to give me some more exposition, and next now I'm going to find out who who this guy is, and he's going to play a major role. And we're kind of uh, yeah, our our expectations are overturned. Right. Yeah. This uh, this scene does not uh, does not spoon feed anything. I mean, it's and that's what I think one of the things that makes this movie so much. Uh, so much fun is that, um, you know, there are omniscient scenes like you described, but we are not really wholly in the know uh, for most of the picture. Yeah. Uh, well, sorry, we, the audience. That's you know, we're, and, and, we're waiting to figure things out sort of right along with Roger Thornhill. And we're not getting any we're not getting any help from the uh, the new fellow. Well, let's talk yes. a little bit about this uh, this new fellow that, that's standing across the street. He's uh the, he's known in the uh, in the credits as Prairie Crossing Man on IMDb, but actually he has he has no credit in the movie as, as it as it rolls through. He just didn't get it. But he's a rather famous uh, character actor named Malcolm Atterbury, and uh, I, he's been in a million things. I mean, I I remember watching my uh, my aunt used to watch uh, Perry Mason all the time, and the bad guy was always Malcolm Atterbury. He was always the real killer was Malcolm Atterbury. Um, but my my favorite episode uh, with him was. Uh, uh, in the Twilight Zone, where he was in its doomsday for Mr. Denton, and he was the guy selling the magic elixir to gunfighters, and uh, he sold oh. it, it would make you the fastest gun in the West. And what had happened was he had sold it to two different guys, and they both shot each other's hands and ruined their uh, their careers as gunfighters for life. So he he played you know the hands of fate, 
Um, but uh, just I'd perfectly I'd forgotten about that, that one. I, I yeah. usually remember my Twilight Zones pretty well, but that one I'd forgotten all about. Yeah, and here's the same cranky old guy out in the middle of nowhere who's, I think, you know, it, it, it's funny. I think that was like the first or second season. So it has to be like 1959. Or, he was playing the same part about the, about the same time. He's just this weird guy that you don't know if he's playing a role or not playing a role in what's going on. But um, he's really not, not any help at all. Right, <laughs> exactly. And, uh, of course, he teamed up with Hitchcock um, at least one more time in The Birds. Oh, if, right, yeah. Uh, if my... Uh, if my quick uh, sounds like I know what I'm talking about, research is correct. Well, he was he was the cop at the, at that island with Tippy Hedren, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was the deputy. Okay, yeah. So yeah. Oh, and another yeah. uh, another Twilight Zone episode, uh, No Time Like the Past. Um, I'm gonna have to refresh uh, about me on the, the um, plot. Gosh, I barely remember it, but he used a scientist using a time machine sort of go back and prevent uh, prevent tragedies. Anything. Wow. So, oh, Dana Andrews was the lead in that one. So, if you oh, okay. remember one with Dana Andrews, who was, of course, in all kinds of good stuff over the over the years. Uh, also, <laughs> this is—I I shouldn't laugh at this. This isn't actually funny, but it's making me laugh that when you bring up the credits list for that episode, um, uh, Adolf Hitler uh, is plays himself. Uh, oh, in, okay, in the, I remember. Yeah, the, the guy. Want, yeah, now I remember. Right, so he's yeah, trying to yeah. go back and kill Hitler, and then he yeah. ends up on the Lusitania and all that kind of stuff. Right. So. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so a lot of uh, a lot of bad luck for Tina Andrews there. Uh, wow. So, but well, uh, and, uh, and I have to say before we get to, too far away that um, Prairie Crossing Man is uh, sounds like the world's worst superhero. <laughs> just, so apologies to Malcolm Hatterbury. What would his, what would his wow. power be? Hmm. <laughs> he's just yeah. well, he's. He gets there eventually, he, yeah. <laughs> but only over he, very flat country. He can identify uh, which uh, crops, uh, <laughs> right. which, which which crops need to be uh, uh, covered. Exactly. Well, actually, what yeah. kind of what kind of shoes uh, will get you through the soybean fields the best? <laughs> wow. Now I do have a question. He br- he does bring up uh, as as we bring in the uh, the main nemesis for the next uh, ten minutes or so. Right. Um, we do see a plane buzzing in the distance and. Uh, I mean, he says uh, some of them prop, uh, crop duster pilots get rich if uh, they live long enough. Is there a phenomenal uh, mortality rate among crop duster pilots? You know, it's not so much that there's a, there's a higher than average accident rate, but especially, you know, where we are now, um, surprisingly enough, the, the, the mortality rate is, is actually, um, I would say, fairly to reasonably and perhaps even surprisingly low. And that really just has to do with the quality of the training and how well the pilots are equipped uh, to deal with emergencies and practice emergencies and things. So, so like I say, you'll you'll find more uh, reported incidents of, you know, nicking a tree with a wing or you know having to make an unexpected uh, forced landing, something like that. But the airplanes are rugged, uh, and the pilots are are so uh, extraordinarily experienced in those low altitude operations that. Um, it's really not. Uh, it's not so much the the daredevil thing that it used to be. Now, at the, at the time of this movie, it certainly would have been rougher around the edges, and you, you know, you didn't necessarily have uh, much in the way at that point of purpose-built airplanes for crop dusting. Um, and of course, we're going to talk a lot more about those airplanes in the next, uh, you know, later on this week. But um, what you had at the time were you know, whatever sort of surplus airplane you could get, get your hands on. And then you find somebody to rig up some mechanisms to it and a hopper and a sprayer and things. And 
so you you certainly had more of a wild west kind of rough and tumble attitude uh, at this point but even by uh, by the time this movie came out it was becoming a bit more uh, I guess polished and standardized and things business like yeah yes exactly okay well we'll talk a lot more about uh, crop dusting tomorrow but I think this is a good a good place to pause while uh, while the bus is about to pull up and take uh, well we won't spoil it but Prairie, Prairie Crossing Man is about to have an experience with a bus. We'll, we'll talk right. about that a little bit more yes. tomorrow. The um, thoroughly unhelpful Prairie Crossing yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, thanks for who's, nothing, mister. Yes. Right. Who's, so. who's, he could also have been credited as not Kaplan. Yes. <laughs> if you ever wonder why he lives in the middle of a cornfield far away from anybody, there's, there's your answer, buddy. Right. So, uh, wow. Well, uh, anyway, for folks, uh, oh, please join us tomorrow. Uh, if you'd like to uh, join us in the conversation, we are always available on uh, the usual the usual suspect uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter social pages. Uh, out on Facebook, we're on the man on Washington's nose. Join us there, and, and we can have more continued discussions, and we get a lot of input and other trivia that uh, some of our hosts may have missed because everybody has a great idea for a minute that they don't have. Uh, and I'm sure we'll have lots for, for our minutes coming up. Uh, but uh, Also on Twitter, if, you, uh, if you're a Twitterer, uh, you can find us at Hitchcock Minute, at Hitchcock Minute, I think is the way you'd say it for them. And, uh, of course, if you've missed any of our previous 71 episodes, uh, they're always available on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever your popular uh, podcatchers take you. You can also find us on the web uh, at uh, HitchcockMinute.com, where you can pick up all the previous episodes and read uh, scripts and things like that. Uh, but please join us here tomorrow, uh, Tuesday, when we're going to go over a little bit more uh, about crop dusting right here on the Hitchcock Minute. Goodbye, Mr. Thornhill, wherever you are.